the word that I keep coming back to is uplifting. I have this conviction based on my lived experience that uplifting people or the planet doesn't have to be draining. It can actually feel uplifting to the person who's making that impact. Welcome to another episode of Uplifting Conversations. Today, I am delighted to have a conversation with John Carter from Prado and Nora May Karina from Supply Change Capital. Um, and before we get started, I will uh, disclaim that some of the folks on our podcast, we do have uh, investments with <laughs> Supply Change is a proud uh, portfolio fund uh, of ours. Uh, and so uh, by extension, uh, also we are indirectly invested in Prado also. Um, we will unpack uh, the work of both of them and the remarkable things that they're doing. I poke around and look at bios before I, I start these. I've gotten to know Norma May, Norma May very well and, and, and got to know John a little bit better in preparation. And uh, I'm sure everyone will be as blown away as I have, I am and have been uh, by Norma May. Uh, so John, uh, a, a fellow Bruin, and, and you have had uh, a myriad of, of experiences both kind of diverse experiences within uh, the food space um, as an investor, as an entrepreneur and a company builder. And even prior to that, uh, a really interesting background in the entertainment space and the financial space. Um, can you talk, and, and like, so as another person with a very jagged path, I've found that when you find that thing that is most aligned with you, somehow you're able to look back and see different things all along the way that sort of weave together to, to, to become the, the perfect path, uh, albeit not a straight one for where you are now. Can you talk a little bit about how some of that uh, diverse experience uh, in your past has brought you here? And maybe maybe just kind of touch on um, each of those points uh, a little bit to, to paint that picture for folks. Yeah, sure, and thank you. Sorry, I, I, I'm gonna hit you with the most compound questions in the world. First, why don't you talk about uh, Prado and what you're doing now and what it is and what it does for the world? Yeah, first, thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, and let me share my story uh, with your audience. And, and uh, you know, I think just to simply explain what Prado is, uh, we see ourselves as digital infrastructure. So we're a SaaS solution specifically for subscription food businesses uh, and we believe uh, and the reason why I started this company is that we support an operating model in food service that is more sustainable and is aligned with a lot of the brands that are trying to help people with chronic disease and solve for food access. Uh, and I think the ability to do that is, is fundamentally first about having a, a profitable approach uh, to digital food service. So that's that's why we've uh, built Prado to be that digital infrastructure. for. Was, for the, was the belief underneath that, that digital food service was going to become more decentralized and, and would need kind of a, a supporting hub or an engine. And, and that was the opportunity. Yeah. And, and I, I think to kind of get to your first question about like the through line in my own experience in my career leading up to this point, uh, you know, I, I have, as you said, I, you know, I got my start in financial services and then kicked around in entertainment and now in food. And I think the, the, the common thread there is that I saw large scale uh, tech disruption happen in three separate consumer verticals. Uh, and when I got started in food uh, in Austin here with a company called Snap Kitchen, I had no prior exposure to food server, to food service operations, logistics, supply chain. Uh, and 
what I was blown away by was, you know, at that time, at least Snap Kitchen had a different approach relative to kind of your made to order, which is the dominant form factor. I think most people are familiar with particularly around digital food is made to order and, and the, the unit economics of that and the relative waste of that versus something that's batch produced ahead of time where you're having future orders against uh, that food. And so I think seeing that that was a superior approach and, and a better business, but also the fact that it was helping people with some of these lifestyle uh, conditions that need curated food service uh, and, a, and making that more possible in the world at the end of the day and trying to provide a solution that uh, lowered the barrier to entry for more brands to participate. And what I saw is, is, a, is a boom uh, in this in an inter- inflection point um, and innovation on food service. So you're at Snap, you're also an advisor to every table, right? And it, did did that right. have any influence on or does that have any intersection with your work uh, at Prado? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, we, we what we're trying to do effectively is help businesses like every table uh, to do their best work in the world uh, as in providing them digital infrastructure. So uh, and Snap now uh, is is a customer that is in the early phases of launching on our platform. So. Our goal is to, is to help more brands like that exist. And in fact, we launched another one called Epicured that focuses on people that have um, various uh, gut health issues uh, like IBS and Crohn's. And you'd be surprised at how many of these chronic diseases are out there and businesses that are trying to help people. Uh, and one of the things that they need to solve for is technology. And that's where we come in. Mm-hmm. So, so Normay. <laughs> I always forget, you're so cool. I always forget how much of a brainiac you are and, and, and Shana is. I, 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 don't really, I don't think I appreciate it that you had an MBA and a master's in engineering from MIT and you did your undergrad at MIT and you have all this amazing experience as an investor and kind of this operations savant. Why, why is it that you decided to build uh, a venture capital firm to support entrepreneurs like John and, and talk a little bit about supply chain more broadly? Yeah, yeah, happy to. I'll tell you a little bit about the journey that my business partner Shana and I have have been on over the last twenty years. Um, she uh, she's been in the food ecosystem her entire life. Um, I mean, her entire work life, uh, from the nonprofit sector, working for Oxfam, and really understanding farm farmers and supply chains, to the corporate sector, working for Mars and helping them define their sustainable sourcing practices and then being part of a venture-backed company and helping the company grow and scale. And on my end, um, you know, I, I come at this from a, a slightly different background, right? I studied engineering, went to work uh, in the aerospace sector where I spent 12 years working on, on large-scale um, product development and integration. I worked on satellites and airplanes and um, other space vehicles. And we met in business school. and continued our respective careers, but, you know, maintained a friendship and and respect for each other. And in 2020, what really brought us back was that we were both at inflection points. Um, She had left her venture-backed company. I had just finished deploying a proof of concept deep tech fund, and we were looking for, for, you know, more purpose and more value, right? This was mid-2020. Uh, when when we all had a bit of a of a reflective period, we uh, reached out. I reached out to her to learn more about food. She coincidentally wanted to learn more about venture, 
And we started introducing each other to our networks. And what happened organically was that we made an angel investment in a food company. Um, and as we talked about why this company was exciting and why it needed to exist, we started to unfold the thesis that that our, that our venture capital firm is now pursuing, which is that there are two big forces impacting the future of many industries, but food in particular, and those are climate and culture. So both um, demand side and supply side forces. Um, this is a $10 trillion industry, 10% of, 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 you know, the world is employed in food and ag. It contributes over a third of greenhouse gas emissions. So this is an area that needs technology desperately. And we thought that we were at this, you know, pretty interesting nexus and lens together and that we complemented each other. And, and uh, our firm was born in late 2020, um, really uh, with a mission to invest at the intersection of food, uh, culture and technology to build the kind of ecosystem we wanna see. And I'll, I'll have you uh, toot your horn a little bit here about uh, how well you guys have uh, measured and managed impact as, as a VC fund. I, I think I sent an email when I got the last impact report that said, I heart your, imp your impact. Uh, because one of the things we aspire to do is to share best practices and to educate other portfolio funds of ours. Yeah on how they can not only measure and manage, which is which is a huge part of the job, but also how they can communicate impact in a way that engages and is emotionally resonant and is felt by, uh, by the investors. I think that's part of the work uh, is helping people do that. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys have thought through impact thesis um, and, and impact engagement? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big part of, it's a big part of how we run the firm, right? So when we invest, we're, we're certainly looking for returns. Um, we are a returns uh, first fund, but we also look for impact and we really believe that that, that they go hand in hand. You can't, you can't um, invest in the food ecosystem and not think about impact. And so every investment we make is either reducing the food system impact on climate, it is improving um, health in our communities, or it is improving diversity across the food and ag ecosystem. And so it means that we literally have a pre-screener with questions, yes or no, um, about a deal. And it's, you know, it's that the points have to add up and you have to get a binary pass or fail. And so beyond the financial um, attractiveness of a deal, it's it's gotta be impactful in one of the ways that we've deemed um, essential. And so as we step back now, we produced our first impact report, as you, um, as you mentioned uh, earlier this year, we surveyed companies through 2022 and, um, and you know, our metrics are, we're, we're pretty amazing. 80% um, of the companies that we've invested in are led by either women or people of color um, in terms of healthier communities and reducing the impact on climate, the numbers are in the 70s. 70% and that trend has continued through our investments in 2023. Mm -hmm. So one of, I'll ask both of you about this. One of the things that uh, we try to impress upon LPs, potential LPs and kind of that, the wealth management space that we look to in general is this idea that impact and inclusive investing are not concessionary and even going beyond kind of battling against the negative, uh, we talk about the opportunity for alpha in some of these impact themes and also the opportunity for alpha that's available in investing in 
overlooked founders um, by gender, overlooked founders uh, by by race. And so, uh, Norma, uh, I'll ask you first, kind of, how do you think about even looking for uh, advantage in some of your impact themes? And then, um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask that first, and then I have, I have uh, some, uh, a related question for you, John. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Latina in VC, right? When I started in venture capital in 2015, I could count the number of Latina partners on maybe one and one and one hand plus. Um, eight years later, there's been a lot of incredible work by organizations like Latinx VC or Somos VC and, um, and Black VC and others that have really impacted the ecosystem. And so the number has probably, you know, doubled maybe on the on the verge of tripling. But there's still toes in your counting. Totally, totally. I, I need a friend <laughs> to let me hold their hands. Uh, so the numbers grown, but but as we go out into the ecosystem, there are folks who, you know, who have gotten so many no's and and they come and we are their first yes. Uh, and that's that's incredible because when we see the opportunity that they see because we've lived it right and I'll give you an example on the culture side on the brand side um, we're investors in in IO Foods which is a West African national food platform and in Agua Bonita which is a um, California Central Valley company uh, repurposing uh, fruit into Agua Fresca which is a staple in the Latino community I grew up drinking Agua Fresca. I know how key and critical it is. You go to any Mexican restaurant, you're going to have agua fresca. And so because I've lived that experience and, and I know the, you know, we know the population demographic shift that's, uh, that's occurring in this country and will take place over the next 20 years, um, we can see that future. So we, we know there, that there will be, there's an opportunity for by and for the community leverage, but there's also an incredible opportunity for transitioning to mass market appeal. So that's only on the culture side, right? Not even thinking through technology and platform and marketplaces, but that's one small example of how, you know, alpha can really be found if you truly understand the market from populations that have been so grossly underrepresented and, um, and whose visions and whose opportunities have not had the chance to really flourish. Absolutely. So John, similar question, like entrepreneurship is hard, <laughs> like, like start, starting something uh, from the idea phase and convincing the world that that thing is a thing uh, is hard. It is really hard at, as a founder of color. Um, and so I just, I wonder, are there places where, I'm sure there's plenty of places where things are, are exponentially hard. Are there places where you've been able to draw strength uh, based on your background, not just uh, career-wise, but your cultural background and your background as an entrepreneur of color? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my driving force for, for doing what I'm doing really comes back to uh, the story, my own family story, and my father, uh, who I lost to diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes. And that really keeps me uh, driven about what I'm trying to do. And ultimately, we see ourselves having an impact, uh, for sure, on the waste uh, rooted in, in food uh, service, the way it exists today, status quo, but also uh, in encouraging a lot of these brands who are supporting food as medicine. Uh, as a movement. And so 
I think when I think about the good that we're trying to do in the world and I think about the impact we're trying to have, that's the thing that when you have those dark days, and there are many, uh, and you are right, it is difficult, uh, but I come back and draw strength on the thing I'm trying to do. And the fact that, you know, where we are today, uh, just in the U.S., uh, you know, you've got 96 million people with prediabetes. Uh, and as Norma said, you know, about a third of greenhouse gas emissions rooted in uh, a food system. I think that I see this as an urgent matter. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when I think about what we're doing, when when you have those difficult times, um, I think feeling like you're having you're a part of something that at the end of the day is going to have impact on millions of people's lives gets you through. Uh, and I think it's bigger than me. And I think that that's the important thing to remember. Um, and as an entrepreneur of color, I think also, you know, what I take uh, very seriously is that, you know, that we don't get a lot of opportunity. So you have an extra incentive to uh, to have a successful precedent here. And I think a lot of the founders I speak to who look like me feel the same way, uh, that you have to push even harder uh, because the stakes are very high and we want to set a positive precedent so the next uh, entrepreneur that follows behind me has the same opportunity. Yeah, and I, I, I find that that sense of uh, responsibility and, and like the appreciation of the opportunity uh, definitely uh, is a common thread for a lot of entrepreneurs of color um, and female entrepreneurs that that I have encountered. No, and like that's that supports <laughs> what I believe, which is you hit on the lived experience, you hit on having sort of this deeper well, um, uh, which is everything, right? And the staying power in entrepreneurship is everything. So that's incredible. Uh, but uh, you you touched on kind of the 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 personal uh, pain point or one of the personal uh, pain points or places where uh, there was some uh, some darkness and, and, and something that you felt should not be the way it was um, uh, in terms of, of your, your family and your dad's background. Uh, what, what gave you hope uh, that you could be part of the solution um, and, and that what you were building uh, could be uh, something that changed things for the better? You know, I saw it uh, when when I when I came here to Austin and I had no exposure to to the businesses or type of businesses that we now are um, trying to help uh, succeed. I did not realize uh, how much good you could do um, with just uh, what is a very a simple kind of business service at the end of the day. It's just curated food service. Um, and when I would read the the comments and the letters from customers of Snap Kitchen back then about how how big of an impact that this was having on their lives, um, as a brand at the time, that felt awesome, and I, that was something that you know galvanized us as a team. But it it impressed upon me at least that there's there's a path here, there's hope here, uh, and how do I uh, take this and 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 amplify the reach of it? Uh, to the rest of of the market and the different communities, like the community I grew up in, and that's what really gave me hope is that I found something that I felt like uh, had a reason for being that had real impact, tangible impact uh, that I saw for myself, and I wanted to figure out how I could amplify it. And I think back to your question about the through line, you know, having seen that uh, in other consumer verticals, I knew what technology could do. Um, at scale. So it was a question of how do I apply it to this problem? Mm. 
That's, that's so, and you you looked around and, and like examined like what was the starting point? So I, 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 I think um, we we talk about this concept of, of stretching resources versus chasing resources, and a lot mm -hmm. of time people see a big problem, they see a big opportunity but then they take inventory of all the things they need to start, right? Oh, I mean, if I had this and if I had that and if I had this, maybe I could start at that problem. What what gave you um, the the belief that you had in front of you um, every resource that you needed? Maybe that's just a network, but but every resource that you needed to start to act upon this problem. And, and I guess what, what were the resources that you started with? Yeah, so I, I mean, I. When I, uh, so I was the, I was the CEO of SNAP. So as an operator, I kind of saw this problem that we're now solving firsthand. And we attempted to, to solve it ourselves at the time with the resources we had. And, and it turns out that wasn't a sustainable path for us. And it's not a sustainable path for the rest of the industry. So I kind of had confirmation on at least 30,000 feet that, you know, this was, this was the approach that made sense for the market. And then with, my uh, specific experience, I was able to, with my co-founder, figure out how to bootstrap our way to a prototype. Uh, and with that, uh, we partnered with every table and we got to market. And from there, you know, we've been iterating ever since. So I think, you know, the combination of the experience, relationships, uh, the motivation, and then the opening in the market came together to make for uh for an ex, you know, a chance for us to do this, but I'd say it was really just having, you know, my co-founder and I, and and that exposure were really the only resources we had at the time to get started. Very cool. And Norma, similar uh, for you, like what were uh, you and you and Shana sitting around and like kind of poking around and trading ideas, and you make that first angel investment. How do, how do you go from that to, I think we can build something that truly impacts the future of food for the better, making it more sustainable, more culturally aware? Like what, 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 how did you guys find energy for that vision? Yeah, um, we wake up with, with energy for this vision. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but really, I had spent five years building out another, you know, another small firm. And so I had been a... You know, I'd, I'd been the founder of a micro VC firm and had done the back office, had done the fundraising, had um, invested and supported entrepreneurs, and so I knew that that the I knew that we could build the firm. Um, and then on her end, she was so deeply embedded within the food ecosystem that you know she had relationships with investors from her from her days on the founder side. And she had been advising a few companies at various levels, early stage, series A and plus. And so we knew we had the value. One of the other things we did beyond the, the angel investment and the, the conversation sort of checking each other out around values and, and work ethic and um, you know teaming, teaming buy-in and all that stuff. Um, was we also created a, you know, a little Venn diagram of, of who's in this ecosystem and who's doing this work, who's investing in food, who's investing in, in food tech, and who is thinking about culture, right? Who's thinking about diversity and where are those intersections? And we found that the, that they intersected seldomly. And so we thought, 
you know, here's our opportunity, right? We're, we're looking at food and ag from this very different lens. And so we do think there's a gap in the market and we, we put a, a very ugly deck together and started to socialize it. And we got our first LP commitment. So that was the, I think that was the initial fire um, that said we were onto something, but, but certainly it started with lots of conversations, um, you know, work around the, the teaming relationship and then um, really validating that there was a gap that we could fill. Mm. And, and if there's other folks um, who maybe just from, you know, a micro investment standpoint or angels or, or other folks who feel like there are issues in the world that need to be solved and capital um, may be a resource for that. How would you suggest uh, they get started uh, investing? Yeah, I, I think um, certainly doing something before building out a firm is important, right? Whether it's um, joining a platform like Portfolio, right, which has micro funds that you can then um, you can then be part of many investments, but you can dial in and watch the pitch calls and hear people deliberate. So I think the experience of evaluating a deal and trying to, you know, trying to determine feasibility, market risk, exit outcomes, the landscape, um, that's, I mean, that's, that's a muscle that you really have to build up over time. And so I, I wouldn't recommend anyone go from from zero investment experience to building out a firm. I think we had, you know, close to 75 investments between us when we started our firm. Uh, so it it definitely it, it takes some time to learn how to do that and to do it to a point where it's comfortable um, and not really, really scary. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend either and, Angel and you investing, your, your prior you touched on your prior infrastructure building experience at yeah. your prior like that is no small portion of operating a yeah. PC firm if it was just investing <laughs> that that would be totally totally i mean we're 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 really built we built out this firm on top of 20 years of doing other things including um investing in early stage companies so i would i would recommend um the the scout work the angel work joining a platform that allows you to have a you know front row seat into what it takes, and certainly any kind of opportunity to to be part of a small team building out a firm because it's uh, it takes a lot of work to to build out a firm, right? And to invest plus, invest plus, raise capital, invest plus, try to be supportive of your portfolio, invest plus, you know, have post post investment infrastructure for support. So it uh, it really takes a lot. John, how, how would you recommend for the entrepreneur out there, a potential entrepreneur out there who wants to start the next company that's going to change the world in food space or otherwise, um, start at that? We call them micro acts of courage. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I would recommend any you know aspiring entrepreneur do is, is talk to some other founders, talk to some, some people in the fire uh, who are doing what you believe you want to do. Uh, and make sure that you have a well-rounded, realistic perspective on what you're about to start and embark on. Because I think, you know, no matter how experienced you are, you cannot anticipate how difficult and hard this stuff is. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that, you know, it's, it's exciting to start a company. Uh, and I think that it's, it's awesome when people do it. It's something that you should seriously think about on multiple levels because it takes a toll. So that'd be the main thing is talk to other founders, other entrepreneurs that, that are doing it uh, before you really jump in. And then I think that, you know, thankfully there are a lot more resources uh, particularly, you know, in the VC landscape now than there were, you know, even a couple of years ago. So I think that there's a lot more out there and a lot more support for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of color in particular, uh, but we have a long way to go. Uh, and so ever more important to really do your diligence up front and make sure that uh, you're buttoned up on what you're trying to accomplish. Very cool. And I, and that that's a nice dovetail into, you know, what I think will be a, a, the final question. My favorite question, uh, what does the uplifting mean to each of you? You can start with you, John. What, what does uplifting mean to you? I think it comes back to impact. Um, I, I, I truly, truly am invested in in having an impact in the world and, and, and having that impact be tangible. So for me, it's thinking about, you know, the number of lives that we impact through uh, the merchants that we support uh, in, in terms of uh, impacting chronic disease outcomes. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, lowering food waste and to the extent we're successful, what amount of food waste can we uh, impact at scale and what does that fundamentally mean for all of us? And so I think that, you know, being very specific about that and being being in a place to quantify that impact uh, to me is important. And so that's that's what I, uh, you know, when I think about uplifting, I think about, you know, how do I measure my ability to do that and how big uh, can that impact be? Very cool. And agreed. <laughs> what does uplifting mean to you? Oh my gosh. It means um, a few things. I think personally and uh, professionally, right? I think um, it means that we're not afraid to go first. It means that we do work in community and we do things what we call the supply chain way, which means we take from you know, from our experiences um, through today. Um, but then we determine what is what what's the best way for us together as a team, given the current dynamics and what we know now, right? So we're not we're not doing things as they've always been done. We're not doing things as we've done in the past, but we're really looking for the new supply chain way, which is an amazing way to think about um, just really building in what we've lived and learned. Um, and, and I think that personally, what I'm learning more and more is that, you know, this work that we do is, is urgent. It is essential. It takes, you know, it's, 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 uh, brain and heart loaded, but it's also really exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so more and more, we're really thinking and, and talking, you know, amongst ourselves around how do we restore, right? How do we restore at the end of a really long week at the end of a really long quarter um because we we need to you know wake up with the with the energy so i think we need to think about ourselves as as uplifters in a way that that really preserves that balance um i have young I have a young son shana has young kids and we we want to be uplifting in the work that we do but we also want to be uplifting at home 
Yeah. So that's been top of mind. That is so that that so resonates. Like normalizing this truth that doing uplifting work can and should feel uplifting to the person who's engaging in that work. Like that's the most sustainable form of of doing uplifting work. That is uh, incredible. Uh, completely agree. You, uh, John, you, Nora May, are certainly uplifting to me. I appreciate the both of you uh, taking the time here to share your wisdom, share your journeys, and I'm sure a ton of folks will get a lot of value out of this. Uh, deeply appreciate it. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and click the notification button so you never miss an episode.